0: Good morning and welcome. My name is Nick Davies and I'm a Programme Director at the Institute for Government. Thank you very much for joining us. The Institute for Government and the Chartered Institute of Public Finance and Accountancy have been working together for four years to assess the performance of key public services. And today we launched the fifth edition of our Performance Tracker report. But this report, like the year in which it is published, is quite unlike those that have preceded it. Rather than focusing on the performance of public services since 2010, which currently feels less like another era than another planet, um, we have assessed how well five critical public services have coped with coronavirus. We analysed the disruptions caused by the pandemic and the changes that have been made in response, making recommendations about which should be kept or extended beyond the crisis. How successful have these changes been in maintaining the availability of public services? What should we be looking for in the spending review taking place later this month? And what are the prospects for public services as we head into a second national lockdown and a difficult winter? Discuss these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined by three fantastic speakers. First up will be Graham Atkins, Senior Researcher at IFG, who will present the key findings of our research. Second will be Professor Andy Hardy, CEO of University Hospitals, Coventry and Warwickshire, NHS Trust and President of SIPFA. And third will be Sarah Neville, Global Pharmaceuticals Editor at the Financial Times. Following the opening remarks, I will ask a few follow-up questions before taking questions from the audience. If you have a question for any of our panelists, please submit them using the Q&A function. You can submit them while we're speaking and I'll then try to ask as many of them as possible. I'd also encourage you to tweet using hashtag performance tracker. Right, without much further ado, I'm going to hand over to Graham Atkins, our first panelist.
1: Great, thanks, Nick. Um, So, as you said, 2020 has been an exceptionally disruptive year for public services Uh, and so this year we've really focused on kind of five critical public services. So this morning I'm going to run through kind of the scale of the disruption and precisely how those services have been disrupted, what the consequences of those will be as we kind of exit the acute phase of the pandemic and a couple of key changes, how funding has changed and how the use of technology has changed during the pandemic. So to start with disruptions, the main and kind of first most obvious uh, disruption has been that public services have faced higher costs uh, in order to make services compliant with social distancing and put into place uh, additional kind of measures to contain the spread of the virus. And some of them, where they raised their own money have lost income. So to take one kind of well-discussed example, uh, this is a chart of the number of items of personal protective equipment uh, that were distributed each month in 2019 and then, if we just compare that to the number of items that were being distributed each month on average in 2020, you see that in almost every category there's significantly more, particularly looking at face masks and aprons. Um, kind of importantly, this this and a lot of other cost pressures in order to run services while maintaining enhanced infection control are recurrent. So this isn't something that you kind of just throw a lot of money at once and then it solves the problem, it's an ongoing cost you need to run the service, so that's going to be one ongoing problem. Uh, the second is that public services have really faced different demands, so it's really kind of most clear in acute hospitals where a rapid rise in coronavirus patients meant that NHS England had to increase the number of critical care beds very quickly by about 75% from the start of the year until May, but it's also evident in a lot of other services as well, So after the government told people to stay away from hospitals uh, if they had coronavirus symptoms at the start of the pandemic uh, NHS11 has been fielding a lot more calls almost twice as many calls uh, in March this year as compared to March 2019. Uh, now while doing all of this public services have been trying to manage uh, quite a bit with fewer staff uh, so during the peak of the first wave of the virus about eight uh, percent of staff time in adult social care was lost Sickness between March and June, and that's quite a big increase that compares to a rate of about two percent in normal times. And likewise, in the NHS, the number of staff days lost due to sickness absence uh, increased about two percentage points uh, in April 2020 as compared to April 2019. Now, in some of the other kind of non front well, non responding services, so here I'm thinking about schools and courts, a lot had to either shut down entirely or operate at a much lower capacity in order to comply with social distancing. So in the criminal courts, jury trials were initially postponed entirely. And even in August, uh, quite recently, they were only running at about 25% of their pre-coronavirus numbers. Likewise, of course, uh, schools closed their doors to all but the children of key workers and disadvantaged children, which meant that between the end of March and start of June, only about 3% of pupils in England were attending schools. Now, all of this matters, of course, because it was it was disruptive at the time, but it will have a really big impact because it means that almost all public services are facing large backlogs. Children have missed out on many hours of learning, many kind of medical conditions have gone undiagnosed or untreated. And in short, public services will kind of leave the pandemic um, with even larger kind of backlogs of demand to deal with. So if we take one striking example, this is a chart of the
2: Number
1: of patients in England waiting to be they require a particular kind of surgery, um, and that, that would have that would have to happen in a hospital. So we can see this is was coming down at the start of the decade. It's fluctuated at a very low level since about 2013, uh, since the start of the pandemic. Uh, it's risen kind of inexorably quickly, uh, partially because of course hospitals were told to postpone all non-elective, non-urgent elective surgeries. At the start of Pandemic. Uh, it's not just if we look at the number of cases waiting to be heard in Crown Courts, you can see that over the last decade that was fluctuating up and down, uh, kind of roughly between about thirty thousand and fifty thousand. and 50,000 Since the pandemic, uh, it's increased about 18%. But importantly, we think the actual kind of adjusted uh, backlog, that's taking account of the fact that lots of the trials that weren't heard were jury trials and jury trials take a lot longer to hear than most of the trials, is actually the highest it's been in at least two decades. So public services, in short, are going to face large backlogs uh, and there's, the government will inexorably have to spend quite a large amount of money if it wants to get public services kind of back to the state they were pre-pandemic. Um, now that's quite a lot of doom and gloom um, that uh, not only kind of have there been a lot of disruptions, there have been a lot of changes to the way that public services work, to the way it operates, that in some cases have been more positive. Uh, so if we look at funding, the biggest change, of course, is the government has simply spent a lot more money. It's spent almost seventy billion pounds more than it expected to uh, at the March budget on kind of additional measures to support public services. But really importantly, it's made changes, if you like, to the terms and conditions attached to that funding. So in the NHS, whereas previously most hospitals were paid by uh, activity, how many patients they treated, um, NHS England and the government decided to give hospitals block funding grants and allow them to claim reimbursements for coronavirus costs at the start of the pandemic. Now we were told and we've found that this sped up decision making, encouraged collaboration between different NHS organisations, because uh, in short, fewer were focused on the immediate bottom line and more were thinking about uh, how best to kind of uh, work for patients. Um, the other major change of course is, uh, is to hospital discharge uh, Kind of well known and well commented on but I think what's been less noticed is the government actually at the start of the crisis provided the NHS with, uh, with additional money to pay for the first six weeks of a person's non-medical care when they were discharged from hospital also oh, the NHS and local authorities Um, So the important thing here is that remove the need to assess whether a person was eligible to pay for part of their care really sped up discharge at the start of the pandemic. Uh, And in fact it's really obvious if you look at the stats you can see that uh, bed occupancy in hospital fell to just over 60% in the first quarter of this year and that compares to about 90% in normal times. And then one interviewee simply told us that kind of this additional funding completely changed how antagonistic uh, hospital discharge normally is and removed the incentives to limit access to care. Now, while there were major shortcomings from this, many people were discharged into care homes without testing, which contributed to the spread of the virus. It did ha- it did help achieve the longstanding government goal of faster discharge. And it's worth noting, of course, the problem um, in care homes was discharging people without testing specifically, rather than faster discharge in and of itself. Hospitals are rarely the best place for people uh, with a non-medical need and we think the government should con- consider how best to continue faster discharge in the future, uh, which will probably involve more funding for adult social care and community care. The other major change, of course, has been technology. Coronavirus has led to the rapid adaptation of technologies that have been widely contemplated, uh, not used kind of widely before um if you've had an appointment uh, with a general practitioner in England recently it's most likely been over the telephone uh, telephone, uh video consultation uh, if we look at the blue bars here which are face-to-face appointments we can see they've really declined quite a lot. the yellow and orange bars that's telephone, significantly um that's primarily because the government has spent large amounts more on uh, remote technology it's remote gps remote working equipment it's provided laptops and Wi-Fi routers for disadvantaged pupils in schools uh, and that's been beneficial but in some cases it hasn't gone far enough, particularly in schools where kind of we know that remote learning uh, is likely to increase the educational disadvantage gap because uh, in short the children have, um, kind of parents and well-off families have better resources and have more time to, to learn um, so that should go further. Uh, And there's still kind of quite big concerns about the quality and accessibility of remote services. GPs told us they weren't, uh, they worried they weren't able to offer as high quality care. Lawyers told us that remote hearings don't work as well for vulnerable defendants. And in short, kind of remote services can be quite difficult for people for whom English is a second language without a mobile of their own, without Wi-Fi. There are quite a lot of concerns about how far digital by default services should go given that we think the government shouldn't be trying to shift uh, or set kind of arbitrary targets uh, for digital by default and instead it should really focus on reviewing who wh- where and for whom these services are effective and could be extended and in particular we think there are big gaps on where and for whom g- remote gp appointments are appropriate what the impact on kind of quality of justice uh, distributed in the courts has been uh, from remote hearings and the impact on staff recruitment and retention in all. So while 2020 has been an incredibly challenging year for public services, and when things return to normal, there'll be large backlogs. We have seen there's large scope for reform, uh, but in particular, when we look at technology, a lot of that will have to be carefully evaluated afterwards.
0: Brilliant, Uh, thank you very much, Graham. Uh, Now I'm going to hand over to Andy Hardy for his thoughts.
2: Thank you, Nick, Uh, and, and good morning, everybody and thank you for the invitation to, to contribute this morning. Um, for, for firstly, if I may just say, you know, as a public servant it's um, it's also been an incredibly challenging year and continues to be an incredibly challenging year. It's also been an extremely fulfilling year um, for many of us and, and I've never been so proud to, to both work within the NHS but the wider public sector and as has just been mentioned by Graham the collaboration which I'll come on to has, has been uh, like I've never seen before. Um, Within the re- uh, report, I will focus on the areas of general practice, hospitals, and adult social care. And, and like Graham, I'll, I'll look at certain themes around the use of technology, how funding changes, how collaboration has increased, um, but also things like reduced bureaucracy, and the was that made during the, the pandemic first wave, um, some and then some issues around workforce and, and ongoing backlogs that Graham talked about. So if we think about uh, technology, as Graham said, um, Whilst GPs basically had to stop many services they provide, and um, they, they did largely remove move to remote working, which is something in the NHS we have talked about for a long time. Um, and you know, during March um, we saw phone appointments increase by twelve percent, and as you saw on the graph, there video appointments increased considerably by six hundred percent. We then look towards to about May over that two month period, you know. Uh, The report identifies a six, you know, 3,500% increase in the use of video technology. Um, We also saw that in hospitals Uh, across the NHS. We had uh, the rollout of of Microsoft Teams, which actually meant a lot more people could actually work remotely, Um, some of our non-clinical frontline staff, uh, but also some clinical staff. Some of those clinical staff who had to isolate for health reasons themselves, we still had consultants doing remote outpatients, but they could do them from home. We had a national license procured for Attend Anywhere to help us understand the situation. And again, remote outpatients, as i have heard, increased considerably from 10% in March to 46% in April. Indeed, in my own organization, that went from about 3% in March to by the time we got to April, we're at about 48% being done remotely. Care homes, uh, like hospitals, uh, utilize things like iPads and other tablets, so people, patients and service users can actually uh, have some kind of contact with their loved ones and their families uh, and that was a massive challenge when we had to stop visiting into hospitals etc we also had in social care the introduction of capacity tracker app which is almost uniformly taken up uh, incentivized of course by the infection control fund but it allowed us to have a a systemed and a national view of where availability of beds were what staffing was looking like and other issues to help us plan better and identify where capacity existed for people so overall lots of positive benefits for patients and service users but as graham highlighted i think we shouldn't just go straight to digital body fold. we need to consider some of the the dis-benefits of uh, where weight isn't always right for everybody uh, again, Graham mentioned funding changes. Government made it very clear to those obviously in the NHS and other parts of the public sector that we couldn't allow funding to get in the way to our response to COVID. And the report identifies nearly £70 billion of extra expenditure, and of course, that is still rising as we move towards the second phase. Um, in all areas, costs increases like we've seen of PP, etc. That was certainly true within GP practices where the, the quality outcomes framework, normal mechanism for paying GPs was suspended. And then they had top ups for additional costs, which were identified as and when they occurred for, um, for COVID. Likewise in hospitals where, you know, the, obviously not unsurprisingly a massive cost, nearly 32 billion pounds is identified in the report. Um, and as you said, we moved away from cost per case. This has changed the whole frame, the whole architecture of NHS hospital funding was, <coughs> was abandoned to move towards uh, block contracts said, and then top ups and that certainly has made a big difference in in how we could respond quickly to the pandemic without any fears about what financial position would look like for individual organisations. As said, obviously massive costs associated with PPE, like we've never known, um, and also as mentioned critical care beds where all of us saw rapid expansion for those who prefer those, you know, present their services. Um, Social care, I think. We um, we need to come back to it at some point. Obviously we saw lots of short term funding um, issues into that area. And um, I think one of the things we need to talk about within moving forward and lessons learned. And I know um, Nick, you talked about the comprehensive review that's coming up. When you think about longer term funding solutions for social care, um, whilst the, the short term solutions were welcome during the pandemic, it's not the way to, to move forward. Uh, and so I think that we do need to review overall levels of funding for the, for the public sector. As you say we've increased our cost basis significantly across the whole of it but also how those funding mechanisms get money into the service. Um, Graham talked about collaboration and I can say I personally witnessed collaboration like I've never seen before in the public sector and um, where and some of that was due to um disincentives and organisational barriers were removed around funding streams etc and um, there are great um, examples in the report around data sharing between GPs so they could see other people's patients for the first ever time if there's an issue, we talked about having hot hubs for um, Covid patients which we haven't seen before to keep other areas Covid free. Um, sharing of information between GP practices in hospitals which which surprises many of the public that's not uniformly done so that meant that when a patient turned up into an actual emergency department uh, people have got not just what's in front of them and what's being described in their symptoms but they can see the background to that patient. Uh, and as you said, I think discharging from hospitals, uh, Graham mentioned, was was considerably speeded up. Um, of course, there's some downsides to that, but we do, do need to think about how we can get some of those um, changes to stick so that we have better flow through our hospitals, better flow through our health and social care systems. Um, I mentioned bureaucracy, we had quite a lot of bureaucracy was um, and the administration burden was reduced across all the different sectors, GP, hospital and, and in social care, whether that meant uh, CQC inspections were stood down, appraisals weren't needed to be done for that period of time, um, and a lot of data submissions to the centre were stood down. And I think we need to consider moving forward, um, which of those we, we, we keep stood down, but also though the opposite effect, you know, what what is the patient potential safety and quality challenges that we may face by not having those checks and balances in place. Um, As we come out of what was the first phase and moving forward, I think um, Graham's absolutely right to talk about backlogs and that is nowhere more prevalent than within the NHS. Um, You saw the figures there of people waiting over over a year, 4 million people on waiting list now. If I think about my own hospital, we went into COVID in March with no patients. Waiting over fifty-two weeks, and we hadn't had we had two in, in last year, last six months of the previous year, twenty-nineteen. We've now got over eighteen hundred people waiting for um for over one year. So it's something we're very proud of. Now to to try and tackle that backlog and bring the elective services online and deal with COVID moving forward and the winter pressures is a massive challenge for the Hospital and the rest of the NHS. Um, just, but other things like over. Seventy-five health checks for people over seventy-five at GP practices. Um, This is how we keep on top of people's care without them needing hospitalisation. So how do we get back into that rhythm of bringing these things in? And finally, I'll just talk about um, the workforce. Um, Then Graham mentioned in terms of the levels of sickness we all saw rise, and some of that was due to isolation, but also the report highlights that you know nearly sixteen hundred working-aged people in social health care died of COVID-related symptoms. But it's, as I look, sit here now in a hospital and think we're moving into a second wave, we're moving into winter, I see staff that are incredibly tired, uh, emotionally and, and mentally stressed, and how do we deal with the well-being of our, uh, of our staff in all parts of the public sector to, as this carries on into what normal. So, so overall, I, I think the NHS and the wider public sector respond incredibly well. Um, we do need to do exercise like this to say, you know, what are the lessons we can learn in terms of what to adopt permanently, but also abandon some of things that everything worked. Um, but we also need to carefully consider how we get over those backlogs. Do we need to change waiting time, expectations and have that honest conversations, but also very clearly, you know, as a leader in the public sector, how do we deal with our staff and their well-being moving forward? So I'll, I'll finish there. Thank you, Nick.
0: Brilliant, Andy. Thank you very much. Uh, Sarah, I'm going to hand over to you.
3: Thanks very much, Nick. Well, reading the report, I was reminded on the very first page of what this year might have been about, but for the pandemic, uh, because that reminder was that we had, just before the pandemic started, uh, heard that there was going to be an end to public service austerity for the the first time in a, a decade, basically. And this was accompanied by resonant promises, particularly during uh, the election campaign in November and December, that the NHS would be the big domestic focus and that social care would be fixed once and for all. Instead, as this uh, fantastic report underlines, the, the last few months have been about an expansion of the state that has been probably the very definition of reactive and haphazard rather than being centered on any reflective vision of reform and of course, We all understand why that had to be, but perhaps even at the best of times, the British state tends to evolve in a less than logical fashion. I remember that in June 2010, just after the coalition had come to power, the Treasury published a document that really did seem to presage a fundamental rethink of the role of the state. And all departments were told that they needed to ask themselves the question, Is this activity essential to meet government priorities and does the government need to fund this activity? But in fact, the exercise never really played out as I think George Osborne had hoped. And what happened instead was what one senior Whitehall figure described to me a few years ago as seeking efficiencies rather than making choices. And that approach I would argue, has set the stage for so much of what has happened since February or March. Um, The decade from 2010 was one in which cuts were often made in a way that unintentionally increased pressure on other services, most notably, obviously, the decision to protect the NHS, uh, keep giving it real terms increases while delivering some of the very steepest cuts to local government and and thus to social care. Um, And even if one accepts that nobody was willfully sent into a care home in the knowledge that they had the virus, which is something that the NHS insisted didn't happen, what is clear is that neither the NHS nor the government really took responsibility For a sector that in a sort of policy sense i think has been orphaned for for years and the uneven treatment even of different parts of the nhs budget has come into really sharp relief Uh, as we know the core nhs england budget was protected after 2010 but so many other crucial areas haven't been and that notably includes public health uh, Michael Marmot, the the great guru uh, of the social determinants of health, has said that we as a nation limped into this pandemic with serious and growing gaps in life expectancy, and the budget of Public Health England, which has obviously emerged as uh, uh, the, one of the early scapegoats in in, in uh, the the whole of uh, this affair of the government's handling of coronavirus had in fact seen its budget cut by 40% in the seven years it had existed. Um, So its entire brief life had been a kind of extended war of attrition. Um, And of course the capital budget also uh, in the NHS hasn't been protected. So now hospitals such as Andy's are are having to uh, separate areas into Covid and non-Covid. They're doing it in many cases with ancient and dilapidated estate. And uh, one of the the huge achievements of the NHS, of of medical science over the last few years, has been keeping people alive for longer with diseases that that would, you know, even 20 years ago have, have killed them. But sadly, those breakthroughs haven't been matched by a commitment to creating the kind of community services that are actually needed to protect, to look after those people um, and and, and help make those extra years of life uh, uh, more pleasant and rewarding. Uh, So in a way, you know, the budgetary decisions of the the last decade have uh, in many ways determined what happened in the past 10 months. Um, I mean, the the other problem I think the report really highlights is that so many of the changes ushered in since the pandemic began, began have probably defined the old sore about policy based evidence making. Um, the extraordinary shift that Graham and Andy have, have talked to us about in in delivering healthcare and education and and indeed court services digitally hasn't obviously because of the sheer speed with which it had to happen, it hasn't been subject to any impact assessment and it seems very possible that it's the most disadvantaged groups who may have been further disadvantaged through through that shift. Uh, but I think not to tell an entirely bleak story that there there have been hopeful notes as well um, uh, I in normal times I sort of spend a fair amount of my life travelling around the country to see interesting experiments in in public sector reform and I've been curious about whether those reforms have proved themselves in the very exigent circumstances of Covid and I think there's a a reasonably positive story there. Um, Take somewhere like Wigan which uh, has become an exemplar for the work it's put into improving uh, the health of its citizens and which has taken its social housing back into the control of the local authority. And intriguingly, that's the borough in Greater Manchester, which I believe has had the least number of virus cases. Uh, It seems to have been more resilient than than other parts of Greater Manchester. Um, But even thinking about Manchester as a whole, which of course has had this amazing Devo Manc experiment, the, the boroughs there seem to have worked particularly cooperatively across health and social care. And I was talking to one of the people involved in, 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 in that, uh, that initiative recently who really felt that that had been spurred by the, uh, the collaboration and the strong relationships which had been built since uh, Devo Manck devolved the, uh, the health and social uh, care budget there. And I think actually the model to which the NHS has been committed for the past few years of integrated care systems um, that, you know, has has proved it's it's worth broadly. Um, You know, looking at some of the areas where ICSs have been relatively mature, I think there's at least sort of anecdotal evidence that those relationships, the trust, the understanding that had been built has made it easier for the necessary working across institutional boundaries, across silos, which has been needed to to cope with the last eight months. Um, so perhaps a slightly more positive note uh, on which to, uh, to 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 draw to an end for the time so we can open into a, a wider discussion.
0: Brilliant, Um, thank you very much. I'm now gonna ask the panelists a few questions. Uh, Just a reminder to those watching, if you have any questions, please do submit them uh, via the Q&A and I will try to get through as many as possible. so, I'm going to come back to you um, first. Uh, you're the global pharmaceuticals editor. I wonder if there have been any examples of changes made in other countries in response to the crisis that you think we could learn from in England and the UK?
3: Well, I guess one thing to say is that because we went into the crisis with fewer critical care beds, fewer beds overall, Uh, and and certainly more staffing issues, as as Andy has has highlighted. We went in, you know, perhaps with one hand tied behind our back, and we're sort of coming out the same way. I think if you look at the speed at which some other countries are being able to restore services, they they are doing better than us. I think if you take a, a country like Germany, which simply has more hospitals and more beds than we do in that situation it's it's easier to separate out into Covid and non-Covid areas as simple as that and I think also other countries have have much more step down care than we do if you think of countries in Scandinavia where they pioneered the sort of health hotel concept, which has been a kind of halfway house between uh, the the care of hospital and the need for continued monitoring. I think they've really benefited from uh, having that capacity to uh, care for COVID patients and now others as they restore services. And I think perhaps just the final point to make is a sort of general theme Globally, I think, is the way in which staff have uh, worked in different ways, you know, perhaps to the very top of their license. We've seen pharmacists in some countries able to uh, uh, prescribe, to um, uh, give permission for repeat prescriptions. I know that's happened in the US particularly. And in Spain, we've seen GPs and nurses retrained hastily so that they can work in intensive care and, uh, and acute care. So I think there are things that we can definitely learn from in terms of how we want to move our health system forward, where we want to put the emphasis as we, as we come out of the pandemic.
0: Uh, Andy, I'm going to come to you next. Um, you talked about kind of the many changes that have been made, but also the kind of the, the pressures that you're under, including the, the kind of the waiting list. Do you feel, to what extent do you feel better prepared for the second wave than you were for the first wave?
2: I think uh, we are as a service better prepared in that, of course, we've got knowledge. So um, it's not new to us now. We have uh, better therapeutics. Uh, we know what drugs, you know, they're limited about that do work. We are better set up in terms of um, the amount of ventilation beds we've got. As Sarah just said, um, as we went into this uh, pandemic situation, compared to other countries, our number of beds per population head was was massively down, but that's also true of general acute beds, but we know um, we know how the, the disease works. Uh, in in patients and how then to deal with them to keep them off ventilation and then but then also rather than putting people onto full ventilation we think in use like how we use other oxygenation so we, we're better prepared for that kind of thing um i think though that uh, uh, as i mentioned in my introduction we do have a workforce across the whole public sector who is has had a hell of a year and that means they're tired um and whilst in the first instance you know adrenaline kicks in uh, we're now we're now seeing the effects, mental health effects of this. Um, the the difference is, I think, and where we're really challenged is that at the moment we are trying to keep other services going, which we didn't. We we stood everything down more or less, except for urgent and say cancer services during during the first wave. And whilst we're trying to do um, elective and also the backlog, but also the new patients coming through, that's going to be a massive strain because one thing which I totally uh, echo what Sarah said was that. We saw flexibility in staff, both in terms of working to the maximum licence, but also staff working in different areas they wouldn't normally do, that that really helped the effort. Um, and if we take that that ability away by continuing to do elective, I think we we could see some challenges across the NHS. Thank
0: you. Andy. Graham, I'm going to come to you now. Um, So clearly we've got the spending review coming up uh, later this month, and that is to kind of set uh, spending for the next financial year for 21-22. But do you think that public services have sufficient funding to cope with the winter, or do they need uh, further cash injections for this financial year?
1: Broadly speaking, it depends on the public service you're talking about. I think the obvious one that probably is going to be in need of more money is local government. So, it's worth remembering uh, you may have seen stories in the news about councils having to cut various members of staff and and redundancies because councils are kind of obliged to balance their budgets over each given year. And the government did extend that requirement to over three years rather than over the immediate year. But um, given the kind of extra cost pressures, which are, you know, are going to be pretty much similar uh, in adult social care, in children's social work, and in public health over the winter, um, and the infection control fund, which is only Kind of, it has some very specific functions, uh, mostly to do with helping care workers to isolate and not move between homes. has been extended over the winter, but nothing else. Uh, I suspect local government will probably be seeing some more money. I think more broadly, given it's a one year spending review rather than kind of a multi-year one, the focus probably for the Treasury at this one on public services needs to be kind of how do you make sure, uh, you know, as Andy was mentioning earlier, funding doesn't get in the way. Of the response and kind of just ensuring that the different services have enough to cope um, with a difficult winter i think at the next multi-year spending review that is when kind of these broader questions about how you what kind of social care system you want how to embed some of the changes we've seen during the pandemic which are worthwhile probably needs to be considered so i think if there's one thing we've sort of learned over the summer it's that When the government invests a lot of time in political capital uh, into other projects, uh, it can make make dealing with um, the immediate pandemic more difficult.
0: Uh, Thank you. I'm going to move on to some um, questions that we've received from the um, audience. Andy, I'm going to direct this first one to you. So we've had a question from um, Mary, who's asked about uh, the extent to which contracts with private companies count as public services. I mean, we haven't really spoken about the role of the private sector in delivering public services. Could you talk a bit about kind of how you and kind of the wider kind of health system in your area involves the private sector and voluntary sector organisations in delivering services?
2: Okay, yeah, thank you, Nick. And firstly, I'll say, as I sit here talking to you, I'm actually sitting, within my main hospital which is universal company which is actually a pfi hospital so i'm very uh, used to working with the private sector and, and the services provided within that um, from catering cleaning through to, to maintenance um, i think what i will point out and talk about is during the pandemic of course there was uh, national national funding and contracting of all private health uh, facilities across the country to help us have additional capacity and um, and where that's been incredibly successful again if I look out the window of my office here across there we've got a a private hospital on site a BMI hospital which we completely took over and we transferred all our cancer care there during the, during the pandemic which meant actually we came in terms of waiting times for cancer we came out of the pandemic in a less challenged position than we went in of course some of that is to do with re- reduction in referrals so, so we did utilise that additional capacity extremely well. It was variable across the country. And as we now move out and into the second phases, that is being, rather being done nationally, is being considered more um, in, in systems, how you utilise that private sector if you want to. Um, I think where, you, just, you mentioned the voluntary sector. I mean, actually that's some, that's an area where we, could, we should still develop further. And um, ties are, Variable across the country between the public sector and the voluntary sector, and getting the best out of the voluntary sector, working with them. I think there's more that can be done there. Although I have to say, we saw some fantastic examples in uh, in the height of the pandemic, um, and the voluntary sector came to the fore, uh, as as did communities. And and the voluntary sector is often a conduit for community support to come into the NHS and other areas. Um, There are, of course, uh, always some challenges around what does this mean when when we're using the private sector for healthcare. Um, I often say though that I, I haven't yet seen many patients who turn up and ask you know, is the building run by a private sector or the NHS. Um, it's how we as the NHS commission effective and efficient healthcare from whatever setting so as long as we're meeting the needs of our patients. I, I know that's not uh, a, a commonly agreed a set of principles but there you go.
0: Thank you. Um, Sarah I'm going to come to you on the next question. We've got a question from. Um, Robert Morland, who's asked um, whether we think the kind of the biggest outcome of the crisis will be in the in the care sector, which has never demonstrated for many elderly that the health services is, is, and a quote, free from the cradle to the grave as envisaged in 1948. Clearly, the government has been talking about social care reform, it was something they had in their uh, manifesto. I, I mean, to what extent do you think that the crisis will kind of help or hinder the, the difficult politics that have always prevented us from reaching a kind of uh, a long term settlement for social care?
3: Well, I guess the really difficult politics has always been the Treasury's ingrained reluctance to expand the envelope of the state with a, a big additional offer, particularly when, in, in the circumstance of the the, the Dillnot cap, the cap on how much anybody would have to pay in their lifetime towards social care, that, um, uh, that 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 is something that people are currently paying for themselves. So it's about asking the Treasury, in a sense, to, 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 uh, to, to meet a sort of already sunk cost. So I think the state of the public finances, in a way, is going to make that even harder. But I think the point that you make in, in the question, Robert, is a really good one about this unequal treatment since 1948, which I think many people are actually many, even many Britons, let alone people overseas, are are unaware of until they have a personal reason for themselves or a family member to to understand that social care is not free. It's not what we're used to in this country. Uh, it, it, you have to navigate a very complex field of um, arrangements and it's and, and I think perhaps just seeing having a window into social care in the way that we have in the last few months you know I was struck by how many interviews I saw with people in social care settings and I think these are people whose voices characteristically haven't been very much publicly heard before so I think there's an argument that that could have helped to shift the terms of the debate that may make it harder for politicians not to act. Um, but I think, as, as Graham mentioned, any sort of big bang change is going to have to await a multi-year spending round. It's clearly no longer an issue on the table in terms of delivery for, for this year, but is clearly something that's got to be a huge focus going forward as, as we do head into the uh, the multi-year round.
0: We've got a few questions about um, collaboration. Graham, I might come to this to you on this first and then uh, Andy to you. Uh, So we've got a question from Joan Munro who says um, she's been talking to local public sector leaders around the country about their future ambitions for collaborative innovation. And she's hearing lots of positive stories about how they've worked together in the crisis. Almost all want to use the enhanced relation and trust to achieve much more together but how can Westminster incentivize this more? What can central government do to incentivize greater collaboration?
1: It's a good question. I think it's a question all, all services are trying to grapple with. Um, I suppose the difficulty is that often the blockers to collaboration you hear about, whether it's in the NHS or local government or anywhere else are pretty much twofold. Either it's the financial system that makes it complicated for them to, to deal with it, or it's regulatory it requirements that make it hard to share data. Or uh, um, collaborate in other ways. I think uh what Westminster probably could do is start to look at kind of what are the conditions that have allowed innovations to power So <coughs> then it's easy to say kind of oh all of these good things happened. That's great. Let's write a case study. Let's roll it out across the country. That probably isn't going to work in this case. well I suggest that kind of policymakers in the departments and politicians need to be looking at kind of what changed during. To make it easier for people to collaborate, In some of that problem is just there. So, um, issued a note to GPs, NHS trusts, uh, local authorities, and basically anyone dealing with public health data to share to, that they had to share any data uh, related to kind of coronavirus treatment. I cut out.
0: Yeah, you were cutting out a little bit there. I'm just going to I'm going to go to um, Andy because actually there was a, a follow-up question from Andrew Hudson who said he asked whether Andy could say a bit more about the scope uh, for continuing the greater collaboration he talked about and what we can all do to foster that. And I, I guess picking up on Graham's point, to what extent is this central government uh, enabling it, and what to what extent is it central government getting out of the way? To what extent is it central government supporting things that you want to do anyway?
2: Okay, yeah, thanks Nick. Um, And just for the points that Graham made. And also, um, Sarah's point around uh, ICS's uh, coming to the fore. Uh, So we talked about system working for a long time, um, but there have always been many things that went away. And as Graham said, often the the differential financial incentives has been key to those those challenges. And and we did have that removed. Um, What we did have, of course, during the the, the COVID peak of the crisis over back in in April, May, etc, was a focus on one issue. And we just, as a systems, we came together and, and different systems are different levels of maturity, but we, we all came together and asked ourselves, what do we need to do f- for our populations and their needs around COVID? And we didn't let those questions around who pays for what get in the way. If we try and adopt that mindset around uh, one public pan, so in my instance, I'm seeing in country that, you know, we have a lot of m- public money coming in, whether it goes into social care, local authorities or into the health service. How do we just think of that as being the collective country pound and spend it as effectively and as wise as we can do. Um, we, we do have mechanisms in place to allow us to pull budgets, but that often isn't utilized. Um, we haven't got something that acts as a system like ICS and haven't got any official levers. So possibly that's something that can come along and actually give some uh, power, but you shouldn't need that power if you get public sector leaders together. Also with the um, the volunteer sector mentioned and said, OK, what do we need to do? as best as we possibly can within the budgets we've got and we you can move that money around if you want and we saw that okay we also saw you know tens of millions of additional money coming in um, but some of that was because of the short termism and the fact that we had not got plans in place um, but I think that government can help by making flexibilities between budgets much easier to transfer money uh, we could see more formalisation of ICS's to help the coordination within systems. But also that I think system leaders need to look at ourselves and say, what can we do and what should we be doing? Because actually we sh- shouldn't need too much primary legislation um, just around the flexibility of money a bit more, I think would be really helpful.
0: And Sarah, I wanted to pick up on you on that kind of the um, integrated care systems point. So. Many eons ago, uh, this time last year, when the government was uh, putting forward um, its Queen's speech, it said in there that it was um, looking at a kind of a NHS uh, long term plan bill, which would uh, put things like kind of ICS's on the statutory footing and kind of unwind some of what was in the in the 2012 act. So what do you kind of you know, big NHS bills are always politically challenging. Um, To what extent, how easy do you think it will be for the government to to pass something like that in the kind of in the wake of the crisis?
3: Well, I think it's, it seems to me it just isn't sort of where the attention of the NHS or government in relation to the NHS perhaps is at the moment. It feels like this absolutely overwhelming challenge of clearing the waiting lists uh, is, is, is is going to have to be front of mind and inevitably any form of NHS reorganisation, even one that very much goes with the grain of what's currently happening with ICSs, is going to be a distraction and is going to swallow up uh, management time. So I think one has to question whether Uh, whether realistically this is something that's going to happen in the next year. I mean, that said, it definitely is still under consideration uh, in number 10 and the health department. I don't think any absolute decision has been taken about whether to uh, press ahead with it or, or, or not at this stage. But. My personal feeling is that perhaps the climate for that just isn't particularly hospitable at the moment, given the other challenges uh, facing the NHS.
0: Andy, I'm going to come back to you. We've got a question from an anonymous uh, uh, viewer here. Uh, you talked a bit about some of the kind of uh, administrative uh, burdens and the and the bureaucracies. Uh, and I guess one person's uh, bureaucracy is another person's important accountability uh, mechanism. Uh, which of any of the changes that have been made for example changes to uh, inspections or to uh, appraisals or to data collection which of those would you be interested in seeing kind of permanently changed beyond the crisis
2: okay um thank you thank you nick um as i said there i mean the, the, you know there was lots of administration and, and bureaucracy was suspended but, I, but i'm also clear that of course, some of that does act as checks and balances to ensure we've got quality and, and safe services throughout the public sector and um, I think inspection is an important one certainly um, the bureaucracy associated with CQC inspection in the NHS has been considerable in terms of the preparation that's needed just to uh, and then the actual physical inspection itself we have had announcements post um, the first wave of the pandemic from the CQC they're going to look to to change the way they do inspections, so it's not a horde of people basically coming into facilities which can distract people from what they're day to day, so I think that will be useful. I think the, the data submissions, um, what we find across the whole public sector, I'm sure it is not just the NHS, is that um, whenever there's a data submission, a additional one comes out, we never ask ourselves what we've already got that we don't want to have in the future, it just adds to the burden all the time. And I think we need a, a, a fundamental review of what data is being sent where, and the duplication of those data submissions. Um, I've certainly, in the past, uh, allowed the sort of the, the bit of rebel in me that there is to sort of like, you know, there was certain during the height of winter a couple of years ago, we were be asked for daily submissions on uh, several things. So I said to teams, just don't send them in for a few days and see if it gets noticed. And it took three weeks for one thing to be noticed, then that's the previous 21 days were. But there you go, so I, I do think we should stop and, and ask ourselves those questions. Um, and across the whole of the public sector. So I think data submissions, what's actually been useful? How useful is it? Um, does it re- replicate what's elsewhere? But then also inspection. Uh, inspection is really important to ensure we do have minimum standards and increased standards across the NHS and public sector, uh, but we need to do it a different way. And I, I'm pleased the CQC are considering that.
0: Graham, uh, so Mark has asked, uh, what was the justification at the uh, beginning of the pandemic for the Treasury wiping out hospital trust historical debt, uh, but not uh, local government uh, seems one rule for the NHS uh, and another for others. I mean, what's your view on kind of the, the kind of the, the political pressures within central government that determine the kind of the different decisions and the, the different approach they take to different parts of the public sector?
1: I think there's two things going on. You're right. One is the politics, which is just that the NHS is a national service. It's well known. It's well loved. Uh, If you ask most people about local government, I don't think they know that they would know it was responsible for adult social care, for children's social work. So that's one reason. I think with the with the NHS debt story as well, there was partly a practical point with this. Um, Like after a few years, it initially seemed like maybe there were some bad, like if you like, bad apples that, we're not able to. We're not managing their finances particularly well, and consequently have had to borrow from the DH. But by the time they cancelled it, the vast majority of NHS trusts, you know, owed some kind of debt to the Department of Health and were paying interest on it. The reason for cancelling it, if you like, was just quite pragmatic, that it removed kind of one concern about how you're going to make your interest payments each month, uh, which probably wouldn't have been time best spent uh, during the pandemic. When it comes to local government as well, there's the kind of politics of it. think there generally is a bit of a disconnect from you know ministers uh, and policymakers maybe departments and kind of what local government requires um it's really notable i think you know local government uh local authorities in england obviously obliged to balance their budget each year which just creates a completely different incentive to a centralized service if you kind of spend more than you're budgeted uh in a department you can go back to you know parliament with an excess spending request and ask for the money if you spend more in local government uh, we well, you can't. You have to declare a section 114 notice and 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 call yourself bankrupt. So partly it's about the politics, and partly it's just about like the lack of recognition of how local government operates compared to other services.
0: Sarah, I'm, the next question I'm going to direct to you is from uh, John uh, Charlesworth. Uh, uh, Slightly like tricky one because I'm not sure anyone knows the answer to this, uh, but. Um, When do you see an effective uh, test and trace system working?
3: Well, perhaps the first thing to say is that when infections are as high as they are at the moment, I don't think it can work. I think what lockdown, new lockdown has to be about is using the time to make the system more resilient for when we start hopefully seeing a, a significant drop in infections. Um, And that means, um, I guess it means more staff. I know they're they're certainly looking at bringing in more clinical staff because they found that they're much more effective in persuading people to self-isolate. But also, very crucially, we've talked quite a bit about local government this morning, very crucially, having much closer working with the local authorities because, as you know, it was months before the part that local authorities could play in contact tracing was really recognised. They have this huge pool of staff who are well trained in, in contact tracing and of course crucially know their areas intimately. And they were not being deployed and the local authorities were not being sent the data that they needed, the granular data, to start getting on top of incipient outbreaks. So I think there are, things that can be done better but they probably won't prove effective until we start seeing a, a, a diminishing of case numbers.
0: Andy I think you wanted to come in there.
2: Yeah I just think it, it's um, thank you it, it's worth just saying how um, going back to one of Sarah's early points around you know where we were prepared compared to the countries you know when we came into to March two things that you know we probably didn't realise at the time is that a that only 1% of our PPE was made in this country and we were reliant on overseas. And it's great that that's now approaching 70% domestically manufactured. So that helps in terms of supply chains. But testing was the other side of it. Um, we really didn't have the testing capacity we needed um, if we compare ourselves to other Western European countries such as Germany. So if you think back on the 10th of April, right, between that, that Easter weekend of the peak, we were doing about 2,500 tests a day around this. The hospitals, you know, We're now up to a capacity of 500,000 tests a day and whilst that doesn't help the, the trace side as, as Sarah says you need that to really when uh, the small amounts of the virus around but our actual capacity uh, uh, we should be celebrating how we've, we've increased that so much in a period of time and as we talk about moonshots and we get into that sort of citywide wide um, testing and townwide testing uh, that has been announced today with Liverpool etc. These these are things to to, We should be celebrating in terms of how we've increased our industry and our ability to do testing as the country, and that will be part of the weapons moving forward about how we fight back against the disease. Uh, Although as Sarah says we do need to be small amounts to do the test, the tracing side of it, but actually what we've seen is fantastic increases in in our capacity, both for PPE production and manufacture, but also testing and uh, and as we move into other tests around lateral flow etc it could be game changing in terms of understanding where the disease patterns are within the country
0: Thank you. I've got one uh, final question that I'm going to put to all of you. But um, if uh, the first person who answers has already given the best answer, then do feel free to use the opportunity to make any final comments uh, that you want to make before we uh, finish. So, uh, Sarah, I'm going to come to you uh, first. It's a question from uh, Baroness Hilary Armstrong, the chair of the Public Services Committee in the House of Lords. Uh, And she says, collaboration requires more equality between players. They interviewed people from Germany, New Zealand and Taiwan, all of which told a great story of greater respect for local actors. And she's asked, is our highly centralised state a problem?
3: Uh, Yes, I, I think it is. I think one of the fascinating things to watch in the last few months has been to see Westminster politicians come to terms with the power of the metro mayors. And also the fact that we are uh, a a kingdom formed of four constituent countries. Uh, I I think there was a widespread belief initially in, in the Westminster government that the whole of the country would move in lockstep. And of course, we've seen a lot of, you know, in many ways, very beneficial flexing of muscles by those other local and uh, regional and national, indeed, actors in in the uh, in the other three nations. Uh, Andy,
0: I'm going to come to you next. Any further thoughts on that question or final?
2: Yeah, okay, okay, I just I, I just that uh, I agree. There just needs to be a rebalancing away from the centre. I think some things do need to be done nationally. For example, the furlough response. But when we think around testing and tracing and um, our areas are all different and whilst you know if you think about age 20 yeah there's lots of things that are different so they're the same rather some of those local variations are known about locally and let us deal with them and give us the tools and the free freedom to do that.
1: Thank you and Graham finally to you. Well one of the many problems with the centralised state has really largely been that when you have it so centralised wait a long time for kind of people in number 10 people in Downing Street to make decisions uh, and so kind of local government and public health in particular right there are a lot of issues about as Sarah said earlier, then waiting for data, then waiting for um, the various other central permissions to do things. The one thing I would note is that a lot of the other countries we kind of compare favorably against. Uh, it's not just that the kind of local government has more powers there, but also that it has more of its own responsibility that raises more of its own money. That often seems to be one of the critical differences where you know local areas can act more. So it's not just about having more powers, it's about having the power to raise the money to do things as well. Fantastic. And with that, I'm going to bring the discussion
0: to a close. Uh, For those who haven't yet had a chance, please do peruse the report. Uh, There are interesting nuggets of information on every page uh, with some beautiful charts to match. Uh, Thank you to our three speakers for a brilliant discussion. Uh, Thanks to SIPFA for partnering with us on Performance Tracker. uh, And thank you to
2: all of those who've watched today. Goodbye.